Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Catherine Kovacic, writer and art historian. Her debut novel, The Portrait of Molly Dean, was shortlisted for the 2019 Ned Kelly Award for Best Fiction and is the first three books in the Alex Clayton Art Mystery series. The book we're going to talk about today... We chat about true crime fiction, The Schoolgirl Strangler. Welcome back. Thank you, Danny. Lovely to be talking to you again. So now you have been on the podcast many times before and I'm so happy to have you back. I'm delighted to be back. Thank you, Danny. Now, The Schoolgirl Strangler, it is a little bit disturbing to read. Can you give us an elevator pitch and tell us what this true crime was about? This is a book about a serial killer who was uh, active in Melbourne in the 1930s uh, over a period of about five years. And um, he, well, as, as many killers do, I guess, he, he went uh, unchallenged and largely unnoticed, which I think was what really interest me, interested me about these crimes, that he, he seemed to be able to, you know, snatch children from under people's noses effectively. Um, and so that it's, it's quite a creepy story, really. Mm, it is a creepy story and I want to talk about how you dealt with the victims later because I think that's really important and I think you balance that really well. Why was this a story that was important for you to tell? I think you're right for me it was about the victims so I, I first read about these murders when I was researching the portrait of Molly Dean and I was looking at crimes in Melbourne around that 1930s period and so I came across these stories and I, I looked at them and because I had my head completely in a different book space, um, you know, writing a, a fiction crime, I just kind of filed it away and put it to one side. And I actually remember thinking at the time, gee, someone should write a true crime book about this, but, you know, busy with other things. 
And then um, a year or two ago, I was just having a chat with my publisher and she sort of said something about true crime. And she said, have you ever thought of writing a true crime book? And I said, well, no, but actually. And I basically gave her an elevator pitch and we were on public transport and I hadn't realised how much of the detail of the victims' lives I'd retained, you know, their ages, the dates they were killed on. And it was all still there sitting in my head. And when I realised how much it was still with me, I thought I really have to go and see if I can can make a book out of this because these girls, their story needs to be told. Wow, that is such an interesting way in, particularly because it was research for another book and then it just stayed with you. I really, yeah, yeah I think that's really important. And I did want to talk to you about the balance between, you know, the victims and the serial killers, because I've spoken to people before about true crime and obviously none of us want to give too much oxygen to the killer and you want to honour the victims. And when I read this book, you did that very well. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Yeah, I think there was, I really wanted that to be the story that I wanted the reader to come away thinking more about the girls rather than about the killer. I mean, obviously you can't write a book like this without talking about the killer, but I wanted the takeaway to be that you would have those girls' names in your head. You know, it's like everyone in Australia knows the name Ned Kelly, but how many people know the names of the three police that he murdered at Stringybark Creek? Mm. And it's, you know, for me, it's like that, that, that I I don't like the true crime books that are all about how clever the killer is and how he did this and how the killer's name is in your face the whole way through the book. So I wanted you to come away thinking about the girls first and foremost and to realise that perhaps in a way he might have been clever to elude the police, but he is not someone worth remembering for those reasons. And you're absolutely spot on, but it was a different time in 1930. So an intelligence of someone trying to get away with a crime back then is very different to trying to get a get away with a crime in 2021 with DNA and all our scientific advancements. So it's an interesting era to look at, isn't it, in that way? It was really fascinating. And I think, you know, the term serial killer wasn't even coined in the 30s. You know, that wasn't until, you know, about, about 40 or 50 years later. And so I think that was that was part of what was an encumbrance for the police. It was just so far out of what they were used to dealing with. They had no real framework to put a killer like this into, and that really impeded the way they thought about the crimes and the way they investigated the crimes until we were about at you know number three, and then they really started to realise they were dealing with something completely different. But, yes, of course, they had no, you know, well, they had very rudimentary blood testing, but only in terms of, O positive or AB, but this killer wasn't leaving blood at the scene anyway, so that hardly mattered. You know, um, cars, well, there's, you know, no CCTV, no phones or anything, but he wasn't driving a car, so there was, you know, not, not even a, a number plate or a car make or model to, to check. So they were really hampered by, well, not hampered, but they, there was a lot of constraints and it was a very different time for mm. investigating crime. And it was a very different time socially too. And we had a bit of a laugh before we started the podcast about the the parenting and just that relaxed atmosphere. And and I, as a parent of young children, when I was reading this, you know, I had to remember it's the 1930s. It was a different time. Your kids went to the park unsupervised. They arrived home at 8 p.m. and you didn't mind. Sometimes they didn't come home at all and they didn't call you. You just thought they were at someone else's house. And I thought, what an interesting way of life because because for many people, myself included, we don't live that way in 2021. Did you get lost in this world, in this era? Very much so. It was, you know, I'd, I'd go down all these little rabbit holes about, you know, just, just 
the social, the niceties and the things you don't expect about society in that time. And I was actually, it was really interesting for me to find out that yeah, there was almost like a, a crime obsession in Melbourne. You're looking at the newspapers leading into this. There were there were all these little things like um, the Argus was running minute mysteries, which then became five minute mysteries, you know, where you could solve the crime. And um, I think Table Talk had something called Sign Crime where they had like photographs of little crime scenes and you had to pick the clues out of them. And you could even send away for some game if you were like, I guess, that kind of family who played these kind of games, which was like a Scotland Yard case that had like little evidence envelopes and a big, the reveal was in a big secret thing. And of course, there were things like the 39 Steps and The Man Who Knew Too Much were starting to come on as movies were developing and certainly the books were out there. So, but Melbourne, it, it, there's a lot in the paper just in terms of, you know, fictionalised crime as well as, you know, the true crime reportage. And um, and there was there was quite a lot of crime. You know, we had had the gangs in the more squizzy Taylor Let's see, he, he died in a shootout in 1927 with the very aptly named Snowy Cutmore, great name for a thug. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there was still there was a lot of crime going on in Melbourne and we think about that time as, you know, the rose-coloured glasses, oh, the doors were unlocked and, you know, neighbours were lending cups of sugar over the fence and it was church on Sunday and also charming. Well, maybe in some suburbs, but, you know, certainly not everywhere. Mm, that is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I was, I was very intrigued by that period of time and I thought, I guess a lot of time has passed, but so many things have changed. Yeah, um, I think, and you say the, the parenting thing, you know, that, that in a way that that idea that you could, the kids could go to the park and, and even, you know, as a, as a six-year-old, the park's only 10 minutes down the road, she's with people we know, and if she doesn't come home for dinner, we know she's just having dinner with her friend. That's perfectly fine. You know, that's the way the world is. And, and that it's, it's not until things go horribly wrong that you realise that it's not such a safe old world out there after all. Mm, really interesting. Now I want to ask you, you did a lot of the research when you were writing the other book, as we mentioned before, but was it hard to write or was there research that was really hard to digest for you? Were there times where you had to take a break and think, wow, this is, this is heavy, this is disturbing, I need to take a break from this? Yeah, there were. There were times when I cried when, you know, when I was reading stuff, I think particularly surrounding the parents and, and their, the way they sort of were responding to things. There were some weird finds in the public records office, you know, when I'd be going down a particular rabbit hole because I hadn't found what I wanted and I'd be off on this little tangent. And the, it's quite horrifying when they're right in your face like that. And I don't know, people who do those kind of jobs, it's, you know, it's a, it's a really very admirable but I just I can't get my head around how you could work with that day in and day out because it must be absolutely gut-wrenching. Now I'm really intrigued by psychopathy and serial killers in your book you say serial killers are psychopaths but only a small proportion of psychopaths are serial killers and there's a different pattern of activity in the brain I find this very intriguing can you tell us about your research in terms of in, in terms of psychopathy? I went down such a massive rabbit hole with this and I obviously I didn't want to um, just specifically buttonhole this killer because, of course, we're working, you know, now nearly 100 years later and we can't look at his brain or put him in an MRI or anything convenient like that. But it was really fascinating to read that. So I guess there's there's the issue of, I guess we'd call it the psychopath among us, people who have that... Um, Wow, that distance from normal society and those those sort of the, the markers, what would call sort of that that have a different pattern of operating and a different way of viewing the world, but they I don't, 
they use they use that uh, to their benefit in a way in society. So perhaps they have a job where um, not having empathy with their staff serves them well um, to be able to distance themselves, to be cold and clinical. Um, and they they function normally. So the there are a lot of people who would technically tick the, the psychopathy scale or I think we're not supposed to call it psychopathy anymore, but um, antisocial personality disorder. Oh, for I'm the, going to change for my the, question. It's, well, no, don't change the question because I think that's it's a really interesting thing. And it's, you know, I, I don't really feel that when we're talking about someone who's a serial killer that we can just say it's an antisocial personality <laughs> disorder. I think perhaps we could reserve that for the people who function normally in society, yeah. but perhaps we could keep talking about serial killers as psychopaths because I think that, yeah I think it's a whole different level um and yeah the the really interesting things about MRIs and seeing you know different patterns of brain activity are areas that that don't light up under MRI and areas that do with this different working and just the I guess the, the manipulation that that most of these people have that that you know that they can be one thing to some people and something entirely different to others and as you rightly say in your book which I thought was important it doesn't excuse him from taking those lives but it, it was a it, it was part of you know his diagnosis yeah I think that and that's a really sort of subtle distinction that that how you classify that that sort of mental aberration shall we say um it's it's not that that he couldn't stop himself from doing it it's that you know he didn't he wanted to and he didn't care about you know those girls and their lives so it's a it's not not sort of something that you can say this is an excuse mm. it's a reason not an excuse perhaps I don't know that's even even saying it's a reason doesn't mm. doesn't really cover it yeah you're absolutely right uh, what I wanted to ask you as well, we we're talking about police and you know finding things and investigating these murders and I don't know, did you find in your research, because I think it must change you as a person, if you're continually investigating these awful things, you know, how then do you go about and lead your normal life? And I'm always very intrigued about people who, who work as homicide detectives and how that changes them. Did you find anything in your research about this? I think it was really, that was interesting because it was an interesting time for the police as well. Policing methods were well, they weren't just changing, they were about to change and there was a push for that change to happen. So there's um, there's one officer who's mentioned in there who was um, uh, Frederick Hobley, who was the police photographer, but he was also a detective. And he'd been, he was already agitating for more crime scene analysis and more detective training and just slowly bringing things forward. And it wasn't until they got a new chief commissioner of the police force who had come from Scotland Yard, who was sort of well-versed in the latest in crime scene. And he said, yes, we need to do this. So these guys were perhaps a little bit stuck in the past and they were used to doing things the way they did them. And a little bit of old school policing, I think was, was going on there. You know, the, this idea of, you know, arresting the wrong people and maybe knocking a few heads together to, to get the right response. Not that I'm saying that about any of the officers mentioned in my book specifically <laughs> but um you know certainly there are you know other reports in the papers of that time of you know people who are saying that the police methods <clears throat> um but these officers they seem to they seem to you know they they were good at what they did um the the certainly the senior detectives I you know went and looked through the police files and these were these were solid guys that had you know long-standing police careers and uh, very well respected in the force and um it's 
there was, you know, the police force had its own issues at that time, which is probably a whole other book in itself. But um, I think I think that the idea that these these victims were children, I think that was horrifying for the public, but I think that was also really hard for the police. And perhaps that is part of why they went in hard on their falsely accused people, because I think just the the idea that they could have someone like that on the streets, um, you know, randomly, randomly snatching small children, that was, you know, that was a huge thing. So I think in that way, to me, reading sort of reading between the lines from my perspective, that was how it reflected as affecting them, that they just they just went in that little bit harder. And, you know, they were they were there with their knuckles on the desk, leaning into the guys' faces and, you know, sort of yelling and spitting at them and and saying, you did this, didn't you? Because it was, they were horrifying crimes and they wanted to get someone, they wanted to punish someone. And um, the fact that they couldn't really grasp the whole serial killer thing at first and had no leads to this man, um, sure, you, you turn to, I don't, not exactly the next available, but the most likely, you know, the, the people that usually would have committed these crimes, someone known to the child, a family member, uh, a known criminal. So you can sort of see that, that for me, that was part of the reason why they went the way they did and perhaps got a little bit carried away down those paths. Well, they did because they accused the wrong people. But I think that's part of it, that, that they were deeply affected by the crimes they were having to deal with. And fearful too, I imagine. Yeah, I think the idea, you know, I mean, there were other other murders going on in the city at the time, but yes, the, the fact that, and particularly those first couple of murders, once they'd sort of decided that they fitted together, they happened in quite rapid succession. And then there was this nice long pause and they probably thought, well, that's it, we didn't get the guy, but whatever's happened, he's gone, he's dead, he's moved. And then suddenly he reappeared again. And I think that's when we really see the fear from the police because suddenly on this third crime, they're manic, they're, in, they're questioning everybody. Um, 18,000 people, they estimated, they questioned wow. over that crime, which, you know, that, that really to me shows the degree of we, we've got to do this because this guy's come back. They knew then that they had the same guy. There'd been a sort of a four-year pause and here he was again and they knew what he'd done last time. And they knew that he tended to, to kill quickly if, if the last time was, was any indication. You know, it was about a two-month, six weeks to two-month period. So that, to me, that 18,000, that's when we really start to see the police going, This we've got to, yeah, there's fear there, definitely. Mm. Fear and a responsibility too, I guess, to, to keep people safe and to keep the children safe. And that that's that's a big burden to carry. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And this is... This is part of that thing with this killer who is is in public, and these children were disappearing from very public places. You know, a park. Um, the the third girl was, you know, it was a beach carnival. There were people everywhere, and she literally walked out of a shop. And within two or three minutes, that was as long as she was separated from her friend, she was gone, and no one saw a thing. Yet there were all these people there. It's that I think that above all probably put fear into them. That who was this person who could just waltz in? and make these children disappear. Mm, terrifying. And it was a terrifying read, but I did like how you honoured the girls because I think that that is so important in these types of stories. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was something that I really wanted to do with this book. You're a writer of fiction. Now you're a writer of true crime. You're a teacher with the Faber Writing Academy. I want to know what your process was for the true crime in comparison to the fiction. Did, did it really change the way you write? Did you learn things? Do you keep them completely separate? How's it changed your writing? 
I think, well, certainly for me, and I think this is this is my brain anyway, I, I did most of the research up front. So I, I dug myself into the public record office and got as much as I could from there, which is basically everything, I think, um, from the public records office in the first go and just skimmed through it at that stage so that I could formulate how I wanted this book to be which actually worked out really well because, of course, then we went into massive lockdown. So it was really nice that I actually had most of my material and um, everything else was, you know, emails interstate and to people and phone calls, which was, which was good. But having that, that framework and having sort of at least a rough idea of what material I had at my disposal gave me the way to formulate the story. But I think also the way I structured this, I wanted it to be not not like a story, but I wanted it to unfold for readers as it had unfolded in, in real time effectively in the 1930s. So I didn't want to use the, the killer's name early on. I wanted people to have that feeling of what it was like to, to be in the public, perhaps to be a parent, certainly to have that idea of the police. So the crimes unfold as they did um, and over that span and to follow that along it turned into um, a story almost in that that sort of crime fiction sense. It, it played out that way, but that wasn't my intent. I really just, I wanted you to have that sense of this is the way it was and to, I don't like to say feel that fear, but to, to feel what the community was feeling and to feel what the police were feeling as these crimes were happening. Mm, it's interesting and I think you did that and I'm wondering if you hadn't written fiction before whether it'd be a very different book because it does feel like it unfolds and it does feel like you know all those things happen that you said so there is that sort of element I thought of um the the structure of, of how you might structure fiction that's that's interesting but I still I, for me I still feel that I would have wanted to leave his name yep. till the end that was as yeah because it yeah. comes back to the victims for me so yeah, yeah absolutely and it did and why are you drawn to crime fiction I, I think the puzzle, I think just that that intrigue. I mean, you know, after school television when I was growing up was always the Get Smart reruns and, you know, those kind of comedy versions. But, um, but then, you know, I discovered things like Ellery Queen and Agatha Christie pretty early on and I just, just the puzzle of things like that. And I think it's also the motivation. I always find that fascinating about what makes people do the things they do whether they're you know it doesn't and it doesn't have to necessarily be a crime it's just you know what why do we act the way we do and on even on a different day you know some days you, you might be perfectly charming and the next day you might snap at someone <laughs> and bite their head off and why is that and what are those other things I think you and I at some point we've talked about trigger stacking which is a really mm-hmm. the thing that I find really interesting the idea that that one thing on its own, you might be perfectly fine dealing with that. But if you've dealt with two or three things, it's that fourth thing that is seemingly not really much at all that just sends you off the deep end. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's that's when you have those really awkward conversations when you say, oh, I'm really sorry, it's not, not about you. And they're like, oh, sure, right. But, um, you know, it's so people's brains really, in you know, and thoughts and patterns. And then, you know, when you go down that, crime writing rabbit hole and you try and think of interesting ways to kill people well that's really good and then when you meet those really now we're getting into brain stuff when you meet really annoying people and suddenly you just have this oh I could make you like a victim in a crime book and then I could, oh. and it's you know wow. your day goes your day goes so much better when you Don't start thinking like that Catherine. <laughs> I'm scared now <laughs> 
<laughs> that's really funny. You get your own little personal revenge, and that, no, right. no one will ever know, so it's fine. Exactly. Okay, victim number one. That person. <laughs> <laughs> change the name enough. Change a that's, bit of the appearance. That's right. Yeah. Oh, good. Absolutely. Perfect. <laughs> so many secrets you're revealing to me. <laughs> Now, why do you write or why do you keep writing, Catherine? I like I like words. I think, I mean, this is words in the podcast. <laughs> what can I say? I like words. I like sent I like pretty sentences. You know, when I read books, sometimes I have to stop because it's just a really nice sentence. Yeah. And I just have to take a moment to I appreciate. Do that I say, oh, oh that, those are just, just such a nice sentence. And mm. then you just appreciate it for a moment and then you can move on with the book. And um, similarly, sometimes, you know, you, you read something, you think, oh, that just does not gel with what went on back there. So I, I like words. I like the way they go together. I, I like I like a thesaurus. I like a thesaurus, Danny. I like different <laughs> words that mean the same thing. You know, when you've got a sentence and it's like it's got a good beat but you can't quite dance to it mm. and then you just you get that thesaurus out and you find the word that just makes it sing and the, the cadence is right and suddenly it's just, oh, Words, Danny, what can I say? <laughs> well, words and nerds, two nerds here tonight who love words. <laughs> not ashamed of it either. Definitely <laughs> not. You're right. I'm one of those people that have to close the book and go, oh, that quote, that was so good. And then sometimes I'll yes. take a picture of it and sometimes I'll write it down. I don't know what I do with them afterwards. But I yeah. need to capture it somewhere. <laughs> that's right. That's it. Yep. T-shirt. You need T-shirts with words yeah, on them. That's it. Yeah, with quotes. That's a that's great it. idea. Yep. That's a great idea. Let's do that. In all our spare time, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. eBay shop, cafe press shop coming up. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. And what else is coming up for you? Can you tell me anything that's coming up? What can I tell you? Um, potentially another Alex Clayton art mystery where just sort of there's a there's a manuscript completed, so we'll just I see how so. that there was, un- there was unfinished business for me in that, Catherine, so I need to see where that goes. Yeah, I, that was, I think that was why I kind of launched <laughs> straight into that after Shifting Landscape because I felt those the characters definitely had unfinished business. Mm. So, um, I need yeah, to see so that's there. But, I, I, um, I'm, I'm happy with the platonic friendship. I think mm-hmm. a platonic friendship with a man and a woman, that's important, that happens, but there's a bit of chemistry there, so I'm really interested to see which direction it goes. Uh, well, you if we go if we get published, you will find out. But yeah, it's um because Shifting Landscape came out with like literally day one of lockdown, which oh, I do, do not advise releasing a book on that day. Mm. Yeah, and so that was before bookshops had kind of resolved online and things. Yeah. So sales were not as delightful as we would have liked. But you know, we will see how things go. So um, there is a standalone. Which where am I with that? I'm about yeah over halfway through wow. my first draft of that. Um, and that's oh, I'm playing around with the structure of that so that's it's kind of fun and I'm getting to kill lots of people <laughs> in lots of interesting ways which has been quite delightful really um, nothing like that but nothing no no guns or knives or anything like that so I've been I've been getting creative with how to kill mm, people and get away with it um, which is a lot of fun and um, yeah that's that's kind of keeping me occupied mm, it sounds like i'm intrigued by this standalone so i'll have to see those interesting ways that you've uh you've murdered those uh, annoying people you've met along the way yeah i just might have to go back and edit it. <laughs> <laughs> name change <laughs> 
You'll be ringing me later saying, Danny, can you edit this? Yes. yes. Please? <laughs> just, just, just read this character. Does it remind you of anyone? Okay. <laughs> Oh, funny, funny, funny. Look, Catherine, I love speaking to you and I love your Alex Clayton books. And this was another book that was really compelling, disturbing. Yes, but true crime is because they're true crime. And I think with with fiction, you can separate yourself from it because you think, oh, it's just fiction. It's just made up from your head. So it was a very different beast. But honouring the victims, such an important thing that um, I think we need to do in true fiction. And you, you did that beautifully. So thank you so much for sharing again your writing journey with me. Thank you, Danny. I always love talking to you and geeking out about words and books and all sorts of things. It's always a pleasure. (laughs) 